Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Our guest on this episode, Gretchen Rubin, writes best-selling books about the routes we can take to find happiness and fulfilment. In the process, she's become part of the zeitgeist, even appearing as an answer on Jeopardy. Her latest book is Life in Five Senses. It's a guide to getting us out of our heads so we can appreciate all that the world around us has to offer. She joined us in conversation with Hannah McInnes. Could you begin by telling us, as you begin in the book, by by what prompted this? What prompted you to go in search of this exploration of your senses and, and getting yourself out of your head and into the world, as you put it? Well, it was a very ordinary moment in my life. I've had a bad case of pink eye. So I went to the eye doctor and um, as we were finishing up, he said to me very casually, just just as if he were saying, wear your sunscreen or drink enough water. He said, well, be sure to come back for your regular checkup, because as you know, you're more at risk for losing your vision. And I, I was in shock. I was like, what are you talking about? I don't I don't know that. Why? And he said, oh, yeah, you're you're extremely nearsighted. And that means you're more at risk for detached retina. And if that happens, that can you know affect your vision. We would want to catch it right away. And I have a friend who had just lost some of his vision to detached retina. So that felt like a real possibility to me. So I walked out onto the street and I, and I live in New York City. So I was getting ready to walk, just walk home and looking around. And I think, oh, my gosh, my sight. It's so precious to me. And yet I'm completely taking it for granted. I didn't notice one thing I saw on the way over to the eye doctor's office. You know, I think often we don't appreciate what we have until we lose it or we fear that we might lose it. So I was sitting, I was standing there looking around me. And then all of a sudden it was like every knob in my brain just got jammed up to 11 and I could see every leaf with crystal clarity and I could hear every sound on a separate track and I could smell every smell. And New York City is very smelly, but it was all just flooding in. And the whole way, my whole 20 minute walk home, it was just this transcendent, this almost psychedelic experience of just of, of all these sensations and it and it showed me all of this is happening all the time. I'm not paying any attention. I'm just stuck in my head. I'm lost in this fog of preoccupation. And I had been studying happiness for years. And I I'd had the sense that there was something I was overlooking. There was some missing puzzle piece. And during this walk, I realized this is the missing piece. This is the element that I need to explore my five senses and how I can use my five senses to connect with the world and other people and also with myself. And so just that that trip to the doctor got me launched in a whole new direction of exploration. And I would just love you to explain, sort of comes across as you're speaking, but you say in your introduction, you tend toward epiphany, as you've just <laughs> described. Why do you think that is? I mean, and how does that, I suppose, spur you on? I don't know. It's one of my favorite things about myself, but I will literally like I could tell you exactly when and where, like often like on a calendar day where I was standing when I had an idea for something like I remember exactly where I was when I had the idea for my happiness project. Like I was on a crowded city bus in the pouring rain at the corner of 79th and Park Avenue in New York City. And I was like, I should have a happiness project. I wrote a really bad novel that is safely locked in a desk drawer. And that's when I, I, I was walking down the street in Washington, D.C., and I was like, apocalypse. And I'm like, yes, I must write a book about the apocalypse. And so I don't know. I mean, and I as I write about in Better Than Before, my book about habit change, 
I read a book one time called uh, Why We Get Fat. And like overnight, I changed everything the way I eat. Like overnight in a flash. I just, I was like, this is right. I've been doing this wrong. I'm just going to change everything. And I just did it. And that was like, I don't know, that was in 2012. And so I don't know why I'm susceptible to these epiphanies, but they are great because they are often how I get my most powerful ideas and, and very often how I get an idea for a book. Mm. So, I mean, this this was how you got the idea for this book, but what was the aim for yourself, but more importantly, I suppose, in turning it to a, into a project for your readers? Well, I really wanted to see... I mean, I really wasn't exactly sure what I would learn. I mean, I, my, obviously, my hypothesis was that somehow this was going to make me happier, that it was going to make me happier, healthier, more productive, more creative. But I wasn't exactly sure what that would look like. And so a big part of it was I just had to learn more. The more we know, the more we notice. And so I didn't even really know about the mechanics of how the senses work. Were there just five senses? Should I talk about more senses? Or, you know, scientists argue there's 33, maybe 35 senses. Why should I limit myself to just five? So there were sort of these, these just grounding questions that I needed to figure out. And then it was sort of like, okay, well, if I did go into my five senses, what would the result be? Like, would it, what would I gain? And the thing that really astonished me um, and it got almost kind of overwhelming as I was writing the book is that with just about any particular aim that a person has within kind of the giant topic of happiness, it's really the five senses are a very, very powerful tool to use in, in, in no matter what you want to do. So if you want to pump yourself up, you can use the five senses. If you want to calm yourself down, you can use the five senses. If you want to spark your creativity, you can use the five senses. If you want to boost your productivity and focus, if you want to draw closer to other people, this was one of the most important thing I found was how to like deepen my connections by using the five senses. How to evoke memories. This is something that's really important to me. I feel like I don't have a very good memory of my own life. So I'm always looking for ways to evoke memories and strengthen memories so that I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm like experiencing the experience of my own life. And with all these things, there was a way to do it through the five senses, even the ones that seemed like they pointed in different directions, like calming down and pumping up. It's like the five senses works either way. Exactly. You, I mean, so many things that you find out about these particular five senses. And as you say, there could have been other things that you explored. But in fact, you do. It's, it's, it's not simplistic in any way at all to explore these five. But it's particularly something for you, perhaps, as you say, you know, yes. it wouldn't be easy for me. And I knew you say this aim in trying to revel in my senses would be something you found difficult as someone who describes themselves as rigid. Yes. Why? Yeah, I'm very up in my head all the time. And so it, it was very common for me to have an experience like I'm walking by on a beautiful beach at sunset and I don't see the sunset. I don't feel the sand between my toes. I don't smell the ocean spray because I'm just rewriting a paragraph in my head. Or I can't listen to audiobooks because I can't pay attention. My own thoughts will just drown out the sound of the reader. Um, it's very, I, I think for some people, they are very much more connected to their senses. And I think for some people, and I'm definitely one of them, it's very easy to just get stuck in your head and just ignore everything around us. And, and that was just, I just knew that that was very true for me. I felt like I was kind of a killjoy where a lot of times I'd just be avoiding the negative of a sense instead of really trying to understand and amplify the positive. 
I'm very rigid in that, like, I like have the, like, I love routine and doing the same thing. And when you do, I love routine. I love habits. I mean, I wrote a whole book about habits, but when you have routine and habits, that speeds time. Um, why, this is why one of the reasons, like, a, a vacation feels more rich than, like, being at home, because since everything's new, time slows down and feels rich. And so I knew that a lot of kind of my natural, um, uh, ways of being contributed to this feeling of being out of touch with my five senses. And so, you know, they say research is me search. That's definitely true for me. Like, you know, I, I am the person who needs the book that I write. I, I am, you know, I am the student number one. Um, so I write about what I needed to learn. Yeah. Uh, two, I mean, two questions off the back of this. I suppose, is there any contradiction in trying to, you say, lift the veils of your self-absorption and move away from a sort of habitual work-driven habits. But in doing this, you were very much, it was very much a work project. It was very much a meticulously planned thing. Did you feel any sense of contradiction in that? Do you know what I mean? The sense that it was, I suppose, forced in a way, something that was um, intended to be so natural and to move yourself out of rigidity. Well, absolutely. And that's, that's a huge, that's an issue that I face all the time. You're like my, you know, which is how does somebody who's very rigid and planned create time for play and goofing off? Um, and so one of the things I found is with the five senses, there is just this refreshing quality. There's this playful quality. So even if I was forced, if I was like, okay, today I'm going to make a non-Newtonian fluid out of cornstarch. Yeah, it was sort of an item on the to-do list, but it was so fun um, that it was really energizing. But a, a very specific way that I tried to give myself kind of a feeling of recess and play, and yet do it in a way that that is appropriate to my own rigid, um, and if anybody knows about the four tendencies, you know, my upholder self, was I decided that I would visit the Metropolitan Museum every day. And so I, I've always been very interested in kind of the possibilities of repetition and I knew, and I'm kind of an all or nothing person. So the idea of doing something every day was much more interesting to me than doing it some days. And what I, what I found is that by going to the Met every day, it was sort of my recess time. It was like, I didn't give myself any, any tasks or anything. I just did whatever I felt like on a particular day. Could be long, could be short, could be specific, could just be wandering around. And that's how I kind of, in a very rigid way, I put on my calendar, giving myself this time to goof off. And so I was able through kind of contemplating my five senses to figure out like how to work with my own nature in a way that did give me that feeling of kind of refreshing play. It's interesting to hear you say, and you say it in the book and, you know, that you're not naturally playful, that you're quite rigid. And yet actually you come across as being very naturally playful, but perhaps this is all because of the experiments. Is that right? Oh. Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think, but I think I've become more that way. I think I have like changed and become more like, I see the possibilities of stopping and like doing something fun with touch or, you know, stopping and, and, and uh, really enjoying, uh, you know, uh, a, a smell, which I always was really interested in smell, but I think I have, I, I do have a lot more um, ability to stop and have these sort of playful moments or just these moments of enjoyment and appreciation in everyday life when I don't have my head down, just kind of charging through life, trying to get through my to-do list and my and my schedule. 
So if I come across that way, I think it's it's as a result of working on the book, not because of who I was when I started the book. That, I mean, it that's was... really interesting and very uh, encouraging. You, you said research is me-search, and you write in the book that a lot of people say to you, and this is your quote, in the midst of all the suffering and injustice, is it selfish to focus on our own individual experience and happiness? And I, I think yeah. people say that to you, not just because of this book, but just generally yes. the happiness project. And I wonder, without me putting words into your mouth, what your answer to that question is, if people say, actually, hang on, you're devoting all this time to me search. Um, is that not a sort of selfish pursuit? And shouldn't you be devoting it to helping other people feel that way? Well, exactly right. And I do hear this from people all the time that, you know, they just feel like it's not morally appropriate, you know, to think about their own happiness in a world that's so full of suffering. Um, but actually what research shows, and I think if you think about the people in your own life, you'll see this play out, is that happier people are actually more interested in the problems of the world and the more interested in the problems of the people around them and trying to help. They are more likely to vote. They're more likely to donate their time. They're more likely to donate their money. They make better team members and better leaders. They're more likely to help out if a family member or a friend or a colleague or a neighbor needs a hand. There's sort of this idea that being happy makes people complacent and self-satisfied and they just want to like lie on the beach and drink margaritas all day. But actually, happier people have the emotional wherewithal to turn outward to think about the problems of the world and like what they can do. So it's more like happier people are more likely like, wow, I think there's a way to distribute malaria nets. Like I should get involved in that or like, you know, what what can we do? Like because being unhappy, we often become kind of isolated and, and, and defensive and turn towards our own problems, which makes sense because we're not very happy. Um, but then when we're happier, we, we have the ability to turn outward. And so it really isn't like me or other people. It's like by taking care of myself, I actually am better prepared to enter into the world and to take care of other people. And of course, there's kind of this thing. It confused me a long time because there's sort of this double nature. One of the best ways to make yourself happy is to make other people happy. One of the best ways to make other people happy is to be happy yourself. And so these two things, they don't work. It's not an either or. They actually work together. Um, and I think for a lot of people, that's very comforting to realize because they do feel like perhaps by thinking about themselves, that means that they're turning their back on others. Yeah. And the message that runs all the way through your explorations and your book is that this is not a solitary pursuit. This is about connection and yes. in so many ways sort of selflessness and all these projects involve bringing other people in. And it seems to me the superpower of every sense is the connection it brings you to others. Is that Absolutely. something you felt you discovered through this? Absolutely. I mean, because ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree that if you had to pick one one thing to be the secret of happiness, it is connection. Like we need intimate, enduring bonds. We need to feel like we belong. We need to feel like we can confide. We need to be able to get support. And just as important, we need to be able to give support. And so anything that deepens or broadens relationships is likely to make us happier. Now, when I went into this, I didn't really think about the five senses as playing a big role in human connection. I, I, I don't know why, but it just didn't seem to me to be, it wasn't kind of the first thing I thought of. But in the end, that ended up probably being the most important thing that I did was realizing how I could very explicitly tap into the five senses as a way to deepen connections to other people. Now, some of this is very, like, very familiar, like, 
oh, if you want to get to know somebody, go out and have lunch with them. It's like, yeah, that's a good thing to do. But there's a lot of other things to do once you start thinking about, oh, well, are there ways for me to connect with other people using my five senses? Because in the end, that is very, very important to our happiness. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. I mean, for example, and there are so many examples, but with hearing, it's sort of as much about what you don't hear as what you as what you do, and it's as much about listening as anything else. And for example, that was a very you know interesting lesson to me watching how you talking about your own sense of hearing helped you work out how to listen to the point that you write these you know masterclasses in how to listen to people uh, perhaps you could explore that with us yeah I mean it's it's interesting because of all the things we do with hearing listening to other people is you know the most important um, probably and uh, so and and listening you know sounds very passive like you're just listening but it's actually very active um, and pretty taxing to do so I wrote a manifesto for listening, which was everything that I wanted to remember about how to listen. So some of these things were, you know, like be obviously listening. So show that I'm listening by like if we're at a party, don't turn my my myself sideways to, but really show that you have my full attention by facing you face on, getting rid of a book or uh, a newspaper or my phone so that it's clear you have my attention. Um, and then there were things that for me were really like my particular issues. So for instance, listening for what's not being said. Sometimes that's the most important thing, but that's hard to do. So what is somebody not saying? Um, not l- allowing an awkward silence to pause. I would often rush in. And along the same lines, if things started to feel like start to feel kind of risky or like fraught, I would often start to change the subject even before I was consciously aware I was doing it. I would be trying, I would be moving it to safer ground automatically. And I really had to work to break that pattern. Um, I realized that I have kind of a tick, which is if I feel like you and I are talking about something and it's feeling kind of too emotional, I will instantly suggest a book to read. So, oh, you're getting a divorce. You should read this book. Oh, your child's having trouble at school because of uh, trouble with a friend. You should read this book or, you know, you're having a career crisis. You should read this book which I realized was really just me, again, moving the conversation onto safe ground, because now we're talking about a book report. We're not talking about like your painful emotions or like my response to what's going on. So I wrote a manifesto for listening, put it up on my cork board so that I would review it and really think about how can I listen more effectively. One of the most useful things, this kind of like a little hack, is if you're having a difficult conversation with someone, I use this with my husband all the time, Try to be touching them, whether it's appropriately, of course, like this is not something that you do inappropriately, but you could put your hand on their back, hold their hand, have your knees touching. It's just immediately changes the atmosphere of a conversation if you're touching. And it's hard to yell at somebody if you're holding their hand. And so I found that, like, for some reason, my husband and Jamie and I have, like, we just get super irritable when we're going over, like, calendar things. So now I try to sort of like sit next to him 
you know, close by so that when we're doing this, we're having like we're in physical connection um, and that helps us have a better conversation. Yeah, I mean, I found that really helpful. I, I think many of us can't do silences in conversation and jump in. And it was just in 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 appreciating and thinking more about listening and hearing you therefore I just valued so much I suppose the art of just not jumping in to fill a silence and just letting somebody speak which I found really interesting and I mentioned it was as much about what you don't hear as what you do and about as much about the smells you avoid as you try to bring into your life and as much about the you know similarly in each chapter it's as much about what you are wary that you don't like as you do so that you can kind of curate your life around those things and you know some of the tips are great so with with hearing you say you're always on alert for ways to turn down the noise and these small changes that you make you know again really helpful advice that yielded surprisingly large benefits you say yeah I think one of the things is we can sometimes be sort of passive recipients of our sensory environment and and of course there's a lot of things you cannot control But often there are things that we can control that can just make it more pleasant, more energizing, less overwhelming. So if you're talking about something like hearing, like, have you turned off notification sounds on your phone or or on your computer if you don't need them? Um, Do you have background noises that you can turn off? Like, do you have devices in your household that, that beep or buzz that don't need to? Do you have an alarm sound that's very cacophonous and maybe you could turn it to something uh, more mellifluous, you know, I think, or sometimes people have very different sensory environments that help them to focus. So, okay. So Hannah, I'll ask you this. If you really need to focus, do you want silence? Do you want a busy hum, like in a coffee shop? Do you want music with words, music without words, or do you want something like white noise, brown noise, green noise, pink noise? What helps you? I have to say, I do think it just depends. I do. I, I, I don't have a specific... I mean, at the moment, I'm finding that the buzz of a cafe completely helps my creativity. It's where I need to be at the moment. And there have been times where I just didn't want any noise around me at all. So I I do think it just slightly depends what I'm doing. But I, I find actually, the, at the moment, I find it very interesting, you know, to answer that question more at more length than you probably hoped. I was working in a cafe the other day, and my mother came in to say hello, and she said, how can you work in here? It's so noisy. And to me, that was like that buzz and that hub was sort of propelling me. And and I find that helps me be creative and all the people around me sort of spurs me on. And I had hardly noticed. No, see, I think, and I think that you're making exact, a very, very important point, which is it might change over time or depending on what task you're doing. Um, But it's something that we should be aware of so that we can try to get ourselves into the situations and circumstances that are going to help us. So like I was talking to somebody the other day who said that when she was writing her PhD thesis, she would go into a subway station because she wanted maximum noise, maximum bustle, crashing that she needed that to help her focus. And I thought I would never do that. But again, it's like there's but but what's important is there's no one right way. What works for you right now might not what works for you in a month. It might not be what works for me. And what I realize is like a lot of times people want to know the best way or the right way or what does research show is the most efficient way. And the problem is, is what if I'm the boss and I say, oh, Hannah, everybody needs silence if they're going to focus. So let's have this. Let's have silent office. 
well, you're much, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's not something where you can make a big generalization because people are so different. Even within themselves, they may have variations. Um, and so part of it is really always to say, well, what's true for me? When do I do my best work? What gives me comfort or pleasure? And how do I seek it and try to bring my, and, and also to have consideration for other people because just because something works for me doesn't mean it works for someone else. They might be very annoyed by something that I find uh, very pleasing or useful. So we all have to show consideration for each other because we could be having very different sensory experiences. Yes, that's so interesting. You talk about that a lot. In your exploring and understanding better the senses, it was continually making you appreciate just what a different experience people have. I mean, the really obvious examples like the dress and the colour yes. that, you know, um, some people saw, I think it's gold and others saw black, if I got that right. And then the... It's uh, white and gold and blue and black, yeah. Yeah. And then the same with the sound one where now I've forgotten where we heard you you take take it on but oh um well I live in New York City and uh I remember one time I was recording and and the producer said oh wait let's stop. And I was like why are we stopping? And she said oh can't you hear the siren? And I was like oh yeah now I hear the siren but my brain just takes that out because I hear sirens all the time so it doesn't flag it as important information so I didn't even realize there was like this just clanging right behind me. But then she said, oh, yeah, New York City, they don't hear sirens. In Los Angeles, they don't hear helicopters. But here's another, I think maybe this is the most astonishing one, which is with smell. So you can't smell your home the way a guest smells it. So because of, because of odor fatigue and adaptation, I could walk into your home and smell a very, very strong smell. Air freshener, cats, dog food, who knows? And you can't smell it. Because you're just used to it. And if you went away for a month and came back, then you would smell it. But the idea that two people could walk in, could open a door and walk in, and one could have an overwhelming sensory experience, and the other one would perceive no change, that's just astonishing. And yet that's true. I mean, we've all experienced that. I suppose that adaptation, which applies to all the senses that you talk about, how quickly we adapt to something... Um, is another reason to be more playful, to be more aware of them, to bring more in so that you're permanently introducing yourself yes. to new things. Yeah, absolutely. And here's a really fun way to do it. So I have a quiz, like a free, very fun quiz uh, at GretchenRubin.com slash quiz that I created after I'd, I'd turned in the books. Um, but what I realized, and I read about this in the book, is that a lot of us have like appreciated senses, and these are ones that we do explore, and we do have adventures, and we talk about it with friends, and we reminisce, and we turn to that sense for comfort and pleasure. And then we have neglected senses. So these are senses where we're not that interested, and we don't go out of our way to have new or interesting experiences. We don't talk about it. We don't reminisce. We don't want to learn new things. We don't turn to it for comfort and pleasure, and we may be more interested in avoiding the negative of the sense than exploring the positive. This is a great thing to know about yourself, because if you take the quiz and you find out your neglected sense, or maybe you know it just offhand, some people just kind of know, this is low-hanging fruit. This is an area where you probably haven't been tapping into it. You haven't been looking for experiences. And so if you're looking for like, well, what are some new possibilities for me for fun, for connection, for comfort, for pleasure? This is a place where probably there's going to be a lot of things you can think of that you could do pretty easily because you're not already kind of in it already. And so, like, for me, I found out that my most neglected sense is taste, which, by the way, is for many people the most appreciated sense. Um, but for me, it's the least appreciated, um, most neglected. And so I found all these ways to tap into taste 
because I'd sort of been, you know, I'd been overlooking it. Tell us about that. It's, it's wonderful because you then almost it's the opposite from the from overlooking it you then go on these extraordinary journeys and make these um, huge efforts to bring everybody into this appreciation of taste most yeah. specifically linked with memories and you know I said at the beginning it's really it's very inspirational this book and refreshing and it does make you want to bounce away and do certain things and I certainly felt um, okay. I share a reluctance to have sort of dinner parties with you it's something I don't really want to do but when you make it into this experiment I mean tell us and people who are watching how you engaged your friends and your family into this taste experience and conjuring yeah. up all these memories yeah Bill and there were a couple of different things I did um so to deepen connections I thought well how can I connect with friends using taste that's not just having a dinner party so for them I organized a taste party um, I had gone, as part of my research, I had gone to something called Flavor University, and we had done all these taste comparisons, and that was, I loved doing those. So I had my friends over, and we compared varieties of apples, potato chips, chocolate. Um, I had them all taste a little bit of ketchup. Uh, ketchup, it turns out, is like this magic item because it lets us uh, taste sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami all in one item. That's all five basic tastes. That's hard to do. That's very, very rare. And I think that explains why ketchup is a secret ingredient in a lot of popular foods. Uh, many more than you might think have ketchup in them. It's because there's, there's sort of, and, and my friends, it was like, oh, a friend of mine who's a big foodie was like, oh my gosh, this ketchup. If I didn't know this was ketchup, I would think it was some like rare, super expensive, sophisticated ingredient because there's so much going on. It's so complex. Um, but it was just really fun. I mean, we were all laughing and talking and reminiscing. And, you know, it turns out, like, if you ask people people to weigh in on varieties of apples, like, they have so many thoughts. Um, it was just a different way to connect, which was super fun. And then another way, another thing that I did with taste to evoke memories, um, because taste is very connected to memory, is I did a taste timeline. So I divided my life into four epics. And then I wrote down the, my most, the most distinctive taste for each period. So whether it was my favorite food then that I don't eat now, or it was something I ate then that I've never had since. And it brought back so many memories because it was something very concrete. A lot of times we remember things without remembering that we remember them because we never go looking for them. So this was like a concrete hook to drag out memories. So it brought back a flood of memories. And then I also used it to reminisce. So like I called my sister and I was because my taste memories from childhood are her taste memories. So we had all this fun talking about what we ate as kids. And we didn't even need to taste those things. Just talking about it brought it all back. And so it deepened my connections. It deepened my memories. And this was a, this was my most neglected sense. So I had a lot of fun exploring it. Yes, and I love that you took yeah you took your mother in law all around and it, it yes. enabled her to tell her stories through yes. food, um, which yeah. inspired me to do something similar, and I'm sure would inspire other people to do something like that. It was a way, a playful and different way to get her to relive a lot of her childhood memories with your children. Yeah, so she grew up eating traditional Jewish food, and New York City is famous for its traditional Jewish food in the Lower East Side. So. And I didn't know that much about her upbringing, so I said, "Well, let's go on a let's go on a taste tour of some of these places and eat these traditional foods like knishes, bialis, smoked you know smoked fish, 
And we just, and my daughters wanted to come too. So all four of us went downtown and just did this walking tour and tried all these different things. And it really got her talking about what her life was like when she was a child, about her grandmother. She'd lived with her grandmother growing up. And we all knew that her grandmother was a really important figure in her life, but she never really talked about her much. So we heard much more about this really important figure. She talked a lot about her family history, which I didn't know anything about. My daughters did. You know, it's their family history, too. They didn't know anything about it. Um, and it was it was a fun thing to do that wasn't just like, hey, let's wander around a fun neighborhood or like, let's have dinner. It, it was an adventure. Um, and yet it was a really important, memorable thing that we did together that really connected us through the sense of taste and through uh, memory. Oh, I have so many more questions, but the how-to audience do too. Um, okay. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask you then to end um, because I can't be selfish. When actually on, on a, in a timescale that you did this and whether you feel like you are still sort of fully immersed in the experiment every day or how you remind yourself to get back to that place if every now and again the sort of same self-absorption creeps in. Well, that is a huge question. I think about that a lot because, right, it's easy to feel change, but it's harder to stay changed. And I really do worry that if I'm not focusing on it all the time, would I slip back into my old ways? So there's a lot of, I mean, part of it is it is very self-reinforcing because now that I've tuned into these things, I just go looking for them much more. And I'm much more aware of, of like why I want to and what's on the other side. I'm much more curious. You know, the more we know, the more we notice and the more we know, the more we want to learn. And so um, I'll read about some kind of like art exhibit that's all about touch. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I must sign up immediately. You know, I'm I'm very curious now about other different, oh, uh, I want to try cryotherapy. You know, anything, I'm so, I'm I'm, I'm looking for those opportunities. I have something called a five senses journal. I'm actually creating a journal like this, like a because I just made mine out of some ordinary notebook. I'm actually making like a nice one uh, for people who want to do it. A lot of people are seem drawn to this exercise where each day you just write down a notable seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching experience. And it doesn't have to be the favorite or, you know, the standout. It's just something significant. Like I did a book talk in a movie theater and there was the smell of movie popcorn. And I was like, oh, I love the smell of movie popcorn. So I wrote it down. And sort of by every day trying to kind of do a highlight reel like that helps me stay attuned to my five senses and always stay awake to them. I'm go, I still go to the Met every day. I did it for a year, but it was so great that I think I'll go to the Met every day for the rest of my life. Interesting, it turns out a lot of people have the impulse to do something every day. I thought I was the only one. Turns out a lot of people like to do the same thing every day this way. So that's something where, and, and when I'm there, I am very much like casting my myself out. What am I sm- smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, and of course seeing. Um, so I have a lot of little things that I do, um, but it is something that I think about because I do, I, I feel like I don't want to backslide. I've learned so much. I've gained so much. Um, I need to find ways so that I stay, uh, I, I do stay um, out of my head and into the world. It's interesting that you talk about the Met and, um, sorry, this is my last question, but you just sort of prompted me to think whether you would be able to say if it was the natural world that heightened your senses more or something like, you know, a museum and kind of man-made art and artifice like that? I think for some people it would be nature. I mean, and and I, you know, I go, I walk in Central Park all the time too, and and there's definitely benefits to both. Um, 
And I think people are drawn to either. Um, I, For me, the Met kind of represented everything that the world offered that I wasn't taking advantage of. I was already taking advantage of Central Park because I walked through it all the time. So for me, the Met was like, oh, I want to tap into this. But I think people are different. Like I've talked to people who do the, the very same walk through their neighborhood because they want to see like a particular tree change over time. Or they'll take a picture of dawn over a river. Um, and they like doing like having this kind of uh, photo series. I talked to a guy who liked to go to the same big drugstore every day and see what was going on. I'm like, there's a lot going on in a big drugstore. I would be very interested in that. There, you know, I mean, so I think, and then, and and then I think a lot of people, it's doing the same hike every day, going through the a park. So I think, it, and it could change over time. Like you might be really drawn to one at one time, and then drawn to the other at a different time. And and each has its kind of unique pros and cons, different environments. So I think it's uh, it's 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 something. It's another thing to think about. Like if you have terrible weather where you are, maybe you're like, okay, I want to pick a place where I can be inside um, at least half the year or whatever it might be. So I, I think there's, um, you know, it's something uh, it's something to consider for what works for you. Yes, as you say that where we are, it is terrible weather this evening I'm worried I didn't even hear the rain absolutely pelting oh. down um so interesting and yes I, I, I must stop with with my many questions of which I of course have more but there are so many coming in um from the audience Carol says I find myself saying a lot that I'm not very visual would it help if I did more to stimulate my visual sense in your quiz it came out as my most neglected sense side note I um I thought that maybe no one would have sight as their most neglected sense because as 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 humans were hardwired for sight, um, it takes up the most real estate in the brain. If there's a conflict among uh, senses, sight will almost always trump. So I thought, well, maybe no one would get sight. But guess what? Just just about as many people get sight as the other ones. So that was kind of a surprise for me. Well, maybe because of taking it for granted. Maybe it's for taking it for granted, but but again, like there's so much that you can do with the sense of sight, and and I have so many ideas in the book. There's a whole thing at the end uh, that's called a jump start. That's just lots and lots and lots of uh, different ideas to just get people started. But I think that for many people, just sort of saying like, "Wow, I really am neglecting my sense of sight. This is something I could tap into. How might I do it?" Because the five senses is very concrete and familiar. I think that. If once you start th- asking yourself the question, how might I gain more pleasure, comfort, engagement through the sense of sight, you probably will start to think of opportunities. I see opportunities, you know, literally and, and metaphorically um, to do it. And so I think part of it is just recognizing this and starting to contemplate how you might go deeper into it. Um, another one on sight. How did your eyesight get stronger? Did it? Uh, my eyesight didn't get stronger, but my noticing got stronger for sure. Um, one of the one of the uh, uh, sections in the book is called "Looking for the Overlooked," and so I really tried to train myself to see kind of the inconspicuous details. Like a lot of times, like logos will have hidden elements or make sense in a way that I didn't understand. Like looking at the mat, I would often try to see kind of uh, uh, details in the background. One of the things that I did for the book that's really fun is because I had this looking for the overlooked theme. Um, if you look in the book, at the beginning of every chapter, there are five icons. And let's see if I can help. There are five icons that represent the five senses. And so what I did is on the dust jacket, somewhere, somewhere on the dust jacket, could be anywhere, there's a hidden icon. It's hidden. Now, if you see it, 
you will be like, oh, this is the icon that's hidden. It's not that it's hard to see. It's just in a place where you wouldn't expect to see it. It's hard to describe it, but you will know it if you see it. But it is not easy to find. It will take you a little while, I think. People have found it, so it is possible. Um, because I just got the biggest kick out of this idea of like looking for the overlooked, really turning up my ability to notice, um, not to just be, you know, scanning things quickly, but to really look around. I do that like in an airport now. Instead of just like, where's my gate? Really like, what are the signs? What do the stands look like? How is this airport? Like, how does it look different from other airports? Um, it makes it so much more interesting to really, really look um, and to truly try to notice details. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting hearing you talk because I think and many of us might think, well, actually, I really do appreciate my senses and I have a great joy in so many things. And when you um, listen to you talk and when you read the book, you realize that you can always make more effort and yeah. get more reward from that. Uh, Sasha says, I really love, I think we've probably answered this, Sasha. Uh, tell, tell me um, in, in, a, in a question if you don't think we have, but I, I really love the conversation about taste. I feel like I've lost my taste sense recently, not COVID related. Maybe there's the joy of taste I miss. What activities can I do to get it back? I mean, you talked about quite a lot of those, I think, maybe after Sasha had asked the question. We, we covered quite a few activities, didn't we, in that in that um, but yes, Sasha, do do please um, sort of come back to us if you feel that, that, that there's an extension to that question. Um, Anne says, when's the journal available? Oh, July. Thank you, Anne. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, it'll be ready in July. If you go to my website, uh, GretchenRubin.com, uh, you can take the quiz there and you can look for, I have different journals there and they'll pretty soon there'll be a pre-order. Um, yeah, but it'll be ready in July. Okay. Um, just looking. So Dom says, thanks for the fascinating talk. Would you say that our senses are more awakened when recalling childhood memories, like some smells or sounds linked to our childhood, more generally than you've, you've sort of mentioned so far? Well, it's interesting. There's something called the reminiscence bump. And some people put this at like late teens to 25 years old. Some people put it more like to age 10 to th age 30. And what you find is that memories from this period are the most vivid to adults. So you will remember being 20 more vividly than you will remember being 40. Um, so there is this particular vividness to memories um, tied to that period. And there's all kinds of theories about why that might be. Interesting here, related, very often you are better off trying something by 25. If you have not tasted a cuisine and enjoyed it, or listen to a genre of music and enjoyed it, you are much less likely to develop a taste for it later. And this may explain why a lot of us like listen to the same music that we listened to when we were young adults, or why if you listen to something or try a new cuisine later in life, you don't seem to like develop an interest in it um, as quickly. Not that you can't, but it just doesn't seem, at, it, it, it's, it's often less likely. Um, so there is, there are different times in our lives where like we do have more access to memories and to, and to taste and taste making. Um, can, can I just, you reminded me of a, a theme that comes up, I suppose a theme would be the right way to describe it, of deprivation. So mm. depriving ourselves of a sense is an effective way to sort of reawaken ourselves to the sensation as you say. But I'm just interested to hear about the balance to strike because in a way, your 
personality that was quite prone to deprivation you you say your sort of monk like per, you know habits yeah. was something you were trying to escape and i feel that in embracing the senses the way that you did this playfulness also came with this kind of perhaps sense that you should reject that kind of um, element of yourself that was trying to help kind of deserve things or curtail things or reward things just let yourself have more and embrace more and do more yeah it's 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 interesting because I think deprivation definitely awakens our appreciation so sometimes it's kind of fun to deprive yourself of something like I'm going to give up coffee for a week because then when you have coffee on day eight, it is so amazing. Um, or you, we can use deprivation uh, strategically to make things less tempting. So like one way, if you're very, if you feel very distracted by your smartphone, you can change the screen to grayscale so it only appears in black, white, and gray. And that will just make your phone much less compelling, much more cumbersome to use. And so it's a way by depriving yourself of kind of the, the brilliancy and also the use, the utility of color in terms of navigating your phone, um, you can make it easier to put it down. Can so you there tell ways us how to, you, to do that? Because I think it's a great tip and I couldn't well, find it. Well, it, it depends on whether you have, like what kind of phone you have, but it's, so just Google it, but it's just like, how do I, you know, whatever you like, fill in the blank, how do I turn my phone? It's like, it's very, very easy to do. Like you can do it and you can change it back and forth. Like somebody was telling me she keeps it in black, in uh, grayscale. But then, like, if her sister sends her a picture of, like, her, her baby niece, she, she turns it back to color, looks at it in color, then turns it back. Um, so it's, it's very easy. But, but I didn't want to. And then, you know, these things change all the time. I'm like, the minute my book comes out, there's going to be, it'll be some shortcut that, you know, whatever. So, but it's, it's very easy to do. But, yeah, there is a kind of deprivation that is, that is kind of tied to my killjoy nature, which is I definitely will, like, definitely will... I'm a simplicity lover, so and I'm also an underbuyer. These are all like things that I talk about in the Happiness Project, where like often I'll just won't I won't why I, why am I going to buy fresh flowers? Like they'll just die. Like why would I buy those? And so I I did need to prod myself to remember that you know it's worth it sometimes, and it's not even like I don't feel like I deserve it or I feel like I need to earn it or reward it. It's just kind of like mm, why would I bother? Which is you know just sort of this kind of lassitude. But that it can be fun. It can add. A, it can add this 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 like energizing element to everyday life, and so it is worth doing. Um, but yeah, you're right. I ha I I am a killjoy. I mean, I do have that. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is how I quit sugar. Um, and somebody, I was doing an event, and uh, somebody said to me, "Well, do you think that one of the reasons that it was so easy for you to quit sugar is that taste is your most neglected sense?" And I think yes, I wrote about that in the book. This was a huge revelation to me. Why was it so easy for me to quit sugar? I had been puzzled about that for years because people would predict that it would have been very hard and it wasn't very hard for me, you know, and so, but it is there, you know, there's sugar is fun for sure. So, yeah, so I, and I, this is why I think each of us has to do this, this project for ourselves because we're each going to have our own idiosyncratic um, appreciated senses, neglected senses, idiosyncrasies, habits, temptations, challenges, aims, interests. It's all going to look so different for each of us. Um, but there's so much we can try. Yeah, I loved the actually this you, you um, quote Samuel Johnson in, in talking about what you were just mentioning, 
just perhaps exploring, appreciating the senses made you think twice about deprivation, you know, in a way that you, you might be prone to, and I think some of us are prone to. And you said, as writer Samuel Johnson observed, life is barren enough, surely, with all her trappings. Let us therefore be cautious how we strip her, which is the quote I'm certainly going to write on my cupboard um, on a post-it note. But you say, you know, in part, I'd started my five senses experiments to, to counteract my monk-like inclinations. I wanted a life without sugar true, but I also wanted a life with more salt, more songs, more scarlet. So I, I, I loved that. That was yeah, basically, as you say, opening yourself up yes. to, to things. No, um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, Sasha says she missed the little bit about the taste experiments because her connect- connection left. But oh. um, Sasha, and also anyone else, the, um, obviously, if you are a how-to subscriber, you can watch the video back and find that part. And also, um, shortly, hopefully not in too too long, it will be released as a podcast so you can listen back and hear that and tell all your friends to do the same thing. And, and notifications about when that comes up, up, I'm sure you follow on Instagram and Twitter and things, so it'll be put there. Uh, another question, as a school teacher, do you have any suggestions on how to encourage young children to use their sense of hearing effectively to listen better? Um, will young children have this sense of awareness? Well, I think this is something that school teachers throughout the ages have grappled with. Um, I don't think I have any magic solutions. I've certainly learned a huge amount from talking to teachers about how they engage with students. With children, a great hack that works with children and with adults just as well is that if you want people to fall silent, if you just blow into harmonica, that is often a good cue that's easier than, and I think this is kind of like teachers, will, at least in the United States, will often clap. There's like a pattern that you clap and the children clap back and that's meant to be, make you um, be quiet. And, uh, but for adults, like a, if, you know, if they're not trained up, there's something about a harmonica that just like works like magic that helps people um, to, to fall silent. I don't think that I, I mean, teachers have so many. I, I, I don't know that I have uh, anything to add to all the, the, the panoply of, of strategies that they have to deal with children. But I suppose um, you do a lot of your activities with your children. And what I think engaging with the senses helps you do is become more in touch with your child, childish self, childlike self. Sort of, it, it kind of adds a sort of element of youthfulness to life. Well, you know, that's a very interesting question because I think back on my own childhood and I'm like, was I like that as a child or was I like the way I am? Was I pretty up in my head as a kid? Um, I, you know, so I think we associate it with childhood um, for sure. And like childlike pleasure and immediacy. Well, in the exploration. No, I think you're right. As I think about that, I think you are right. There is because children are so curious and they're like experimenting all the time, just trying to understand and touching everything and putting everything in their mouths. Um, I think there is that. Uh, yeah, I think there very much is this definitely this 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 exploration, this joyful exploration element to it. Yes, I think that's right. I think I was kind of like a studio just in terms of because I always think about things through my, like oh, I always test things through. Well, I don't want to make generalizations because it, would I say that that's true? But I, I do think that that is true for children because it's part of it's part of the work of childhood is to explore the world and to understand how it works. And the way that we do that is through our five senses. So absolutely. Yes. Long answer for a short answer. Yes, indeed. 
Sarah says, would you say there's a link between someone's personality tendency and their experience of engaging well with the senses? As a fellow upholder, this is in brackets, who can struggle to get out of my head. Okay. So if you don't know what we're talking about, um, an upholder, we're upholders, but they're also questioners, obligers, and rebels. You can go to GretchenRubin.com slash quiz, and you can find out your tendency, and you can take the quiz and get a little report and know how this is like going to explain so much about yourself. It's the same place where you take the neglected sense quiz, so they're both there. But assuming that you know about the tendencies... That is a fascinating question, and the answer is I would need big, big data to see if there are any big correlations. My instinct is to think that there are not correlations because the tendencies, while they're very significant, they're a very narrow aspect of human nature, and I could imagine an upholder being like very, very uh, focused on their five senses. So uh, I tend to think not also because I think the ten- the four tendencies are hardwired and that they do persist over time. You're one at 20 and one at 40 years old. You're one at work and one at home. I think that does not change, but I think the neglected sense does change and for many people will change. Like you might be super interested in hearing as a young adult. You do a lot of things to engage with your sense of hearing, but then at a different time of your life, you're really neglecting the sense of hearing. So that I think can and will change. And so I would tend to think that they are not correlated but I would love to ha- love to have some giant data set to test it. If you have a thought of your own, send me a note, email me, hit me up on social media. I'm always curious to hear other people's insights and observations and examples. So, but from what I can tell, I don't think they're correlated. So what would be, just to finish off, your advice to people you know, who want to sort of pick up where you've left off, pick up the baton of exploring the senses? I mean... What would be your sort of simple starting point, I suppose? You know, as obvious it is as it is, I think it's just start to think about it as being an aspect. Like, what is a sense that you're interested in that you want to engage with? You could take the quiz and see what's your most neglected. You might decide you want to do more with what's most appreciated. So if you love music, say, I haven't gone to a live concert in a long time. Why don't I buy a ticket to a live concert? Or I've never done a sound bath. Why don't I try a sound bath? Why don't I make voice recordings of all the people that I love so that I have this kind of memento going forward, especially maybe family members who are older so that I have like this like treasured way to remember them. I think that once you start asking yourself the question and I just from talking to people, they quickly have answers and are very excited to get started. It's one of these things where it doesn't occur to you, but once it occurs to you, it's like, yes. And, and and sometimes I think also people need a little bit of a reason to do it. It's like, why would I buy a ticket to a sound bath? I'm like, well, this is a great, this would be really fun to do. It'd be a novel thing. You'd be using your appreciated sense or your neglected sense. Maybe you could go with a friend. That's a way to engage with other people. It'll make time more rich. It'll be memorable. You just sort of need to be reminded that there's a, to do these things and the value that come from these different things. Or even something just as simple as, you know, smelling a pile of fresh towels And just remembering like all the beauty that the world offers us that we can pay attention to and feel grateful for, or we can ignore. Um, A lot of times it's really up to us. Yeah, it's wonderful to hear you say that. I think that what comes across is often we're told to about ways we can enhance our lives and enjoy our days more and, you know, make things more worthwhile. But they come with this sort of something that feels like a bit of a you know, drudge or a drag yes. and you sort of think, oh, how wonderful. I'm never going to do it. Or, you know, oh, I'm just too tired. 
Whereas when we listen to the ways in which we can do this, you just think, oh, yeah, I, I really want to do that. There's just the ultimate, it may be, a lot, it may be an effort, but the effort is so equally rewarded. That's how it feels to me. No, absolutely. I completely agree. There's a lot of things where they feel transcendent or abstract or they feel like a lot of work or, yeah, and this, the, the most of the things I talk about are very fun, very playful, very concrete, and there's just sort of an energy that we get from that. I, I absolutely agree. Well, unfortunately, our hour is over, but um, thank you so much to everyone. So lovely that so many of you came and brilliant questions, as always. Um, and Gretchen, hugest thanks for the discussion for, and for the book and for going through all of this to share your experiences with us. Oh, well, Hannah, thank you so much. I so enjoyed our conversation. This episode starred Gretchen Rubin and the presenter was Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Luke Naylor Perrett and the editor is John Doughty. I make the show with Esme Bright and we have help from Nicole Wong. If you enjoyed it and want more just like it, consider joining HowTo Plus. Members of HowTo Plus receive podcasts of all of our live stream events and most of our live events. It's a huge programme covering everything from politics to psychology to science and culture and you get generous discounts to our courses, masterclasses and live events too. Find out more on our website. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.